You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. This episode is pretty special for me. As you all know, I'm a birder, and we've got the birder of all birders joining us today. You may remember him from his run-in with the Central Park Karen back in 2020, when a white woman called the police on him while he was bird watching in New York City, Central Park. Please call the cops. I'm gonna tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Though it was a traumatic experience, it opened the world's eyes to birding while black. Christian Cooper is now on the other side of things and really used the situation to introduce birding to a whole new community. We know you're gonna love this conversation, so let's get right to it. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also gonna learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. Our guest for this episode is writer, editor, and birder Christian Cooper, who has a new show on Nat Geo entitled Extraordinary Birder. This Harvard alum has a background in science, once worked for Marvel Comics, and also has a long history of LGBTQ plus activism and criminal justice reform. He also has a new book out as well entitled Better Living Through Birding. Hello, Christian. Thank you so much for joining us The Blackest Questions. Hi, Dr. Greer. <laughs> okay, I'm a total bird nerd and I'm trying not to, you know, fangirl out, but here we go. Okay, question number one. Are you ready? Sure. This young ornithologist is considered a leading voice when it comes to closing the racial gap in the birding community. She was a community engagement manager for the Georgia Audubon, and many refer to her as the hood naturalist. Who is she? Could it be Karina Newsom? You are correct. So Karina Newsom, for our audience out there, is a biologist, zookeeper, and conservationist who grew up loving animals and says it wasn't until she interned for a black zookeeper as a teenager that she realized it was possible for her to make her passion a career. Karina's nickname, Hood Naturalist, plays homage to her upbringing in Philadelphia and is meant to counter the assumption that people living in cities aren't interested in nature. Karina helped organize the inaugural Black Birders Week, which is a virtual event that highlights Black nature enthusiasts who face a unique set of challenges and dangers as they engage in outdoor activities. And she also works with people in underserved communities who've been excluded from conservation efforts. So Christian, we know that you've worked closely with Karina, especially during Black Birders Week, which I can't wait to hear more about, which has created a, a direct response to the encounter you had while birding back in 2020, where you know many of our audience members may remember a white woman in Central Park called 911, made a false claim that you threatened her. So tell us, do you think that unfortunate event for you eventually impacted the larger birding community in a positive way? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because it made many more people inside and outside the birding community aware of the challenges that we black folk face when we enter public spaces, particularly public spaces of the great outdoors, the natural world, um, which are often isolated and, and can be in parts of the country where we are not necessarily always made to feel welcome. 
So I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to some of the challenges we face. And can I just add that Karina is fabulous and I know no one with more tremendous energy than she has. Well, well, you're also, I would say, an urban birder, if you will, right? You live in New York City. You're from New York area, Long Island. Tell us, tell our listeners, ways that they can not just watch your show on that Geo Wild, but really think more about their external city environment and also seeing all the, the small and large parts of nature that are around them all the time. All right, so one of the main points of my show is to get people outdoors, all people. And I don't care whether you're black, white, green, purple, um, but particularly our people, because we have been for so long historically underrepresented in the birding community. I want to see us get out there. So um, that's part of the point of the show. Now, you may think, what am I going to see in a city if you live in a city? Plenty of things to see in a city. Um, I'll give you an example. I go up to my roof, and I live in Manhattan, so I'm in the sea of concrete. Um, I go up to my roof, and there are red-tailed hawks. There are American kestrels. And on very special occasion, I see peregrine falcons. This is from my roof in the middle of the city. Because you got to remember, one of the things cities have are lots of pigeons and lots of rats. That's prey for all these mm. raptors. So raptors mm. love to swoop in and eat these things. So um, that's one thing you can do is keep your eyes open for that. We often do not have access to green spaces the way we ought to. Um, mm -hmm. We should have more access to green spaces and our neighbor sh neighborhoods should have more trees. Too often they don't. But what spaces we have, even the limited amount of green spaces we have, can often be full of birds. So check out what spaces you do have access to. A good example is um, the organization I serve with, New York City Audubon, just started uh, a program called NYCHA in Nature. NYCHA being the New York Housing... Uh, wait, New Housing York. Authority, New York City Housing Authority. Yeah, thank you. New York City, I was leaving out the city. New York City Housing Authority. Um, so these are, you know, the projects, the, 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 built, in, the built environment for, for people to live in um, that people ignore, that people neglect, and yet we're running bird walks in those specific areas to get people out and looking at the birds because there are green spaces there, and where there are green spaces, there are birds. Okay, Christian, I want to switch gears and talk more about your new show on Nat Geo Wild, Extraordinary Birder. Let's take a listen. Look up. Wow. Bright blue flying across the river. The inspiring world of birds is all around you. The fun of birding. Do you see the owls right there? <gasps> is you never know what you're going to get. The show is going to show you, a Black man who's, who is very significant to this community, traveling around the world. Tell our audience more specifically about the show, where you go, and what you hope to accomplish with Extraordinary Birder. Sure. The show goes to a different location each episode and explores not only the special birds in that area, but the, how the birds and people interact and some of the problems and opportunities where birds and people meet. Uh, and then what I hope the show will do is get all kinds of people to go out and, and look for the birds in their area, uh, inspire them to appreciate the birds. Um, and in particular, hopefully, because they'll see an African-American face, I'm hoping a lot of African-American youth will look at the show because, you know, if you never see anybody who looks like you doing something, 
it's hard to imagine yourself doing it. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they'll look at the show and they'll say, oh, hey, maybe I can do that too. Right. Because the birds are for all of us to enjoy. They belong to no one, but they are for all of us to appreciate and to enjoy. And I think it is so healing and something that could be really beneficial as a, a healing factor. For well, our I mean, community. listen, you've, you've inspired a lot of us because you're reverse aging. Um, you know, <laughs> for those of you who want to go on the Google and the interwebs to look up the age of Christian Cooper, and then you look at Christian Cooper and you realize we will all be running out with our binoculars because if this is what birding does, It's taking years off of our lives on the face. I love it. Um, Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and a reminder to our listeners to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more at the Griot Black Podcast Network on the Griot app, the website, and YouTube. We'll be right back. I'm talking with Christian Cooper about his new show on Nat Geo Wild, Extraordinary Bird. The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy. I'm a black man, and I can never be a veteran. Being Black, the 80s is a podcast docuseries hosted by me, Torre, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like those soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug dealers. You had to suppress that. It was a time when disco was part of gay liberation. It provided the information to counter narratives that were given to gay people by the straight world. This is the funkiest history class you'll ever take. Join me, Torre, for Being Black the 80s on the Griot Black Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network. Black culture amplified. Okay, we're back. I'm with Christian Cooper. I'm a bird nerd. We're birding out. We're nerding out. Christian, are you ready for question number two? You're doing incredibly well, by the way. Well, I've only had to answer one question, but yes. <laughs> You're sure. one for one. You've got 100%. As a professor, you know, this is, you've got an A+. Plus. Okay, question number two. This wildlife biologist is also a poet, professor, and is the author of The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. And he also penned an op-ed that went viral entitled Nine Rules for the Black Bird Watcher that was later turned into a short film. Who is he? This has got to be Professor J. Drew Lanham of Clemson University. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, Dr. Lanham has also discussed what he calls birding while black on several podcasts. So if you're interested, he's got a lot of work to dig into for our listeners out there. Last year, he was named one of the 12 most influential leaders in South Carolina for his commitment and advocacy for black people's role in nature and conservation. And here are a couple of those nine rules for black birders that I mentioned. One, always carry three forms of identification. Never wear a hoodie while birding and never go bird watching at night. So, Christian, when it comes to race and the lack of diversity in the birding community, you've been quoted as saying, the birds don't care. So why should we? And I, I love that quote because the birds are just there minding their business. They've got their own little drama going on, love affairs here and there, migration. Lots of things that we talk about in cities and I talk about in black politics, the birds are going through as well. But, you know, not just based on your experience, but going back to Dr. Lanham's rules for black birders, do you think it is safe for people of color to venture out into their own and explore nature? And what would you uh, tell black birders? Do you agree fully with Dr. Lanham or do you have a different set of your own rules? Oh, no, I agree fully with Dr. Lanham. Um, and I should mention, you did not mention that Dr. Lanham is a MacArthur uh, fellowship a winner. That's a genius, genius award. Grant. 
Yeah, that's right. He won a Genius Award, which was like thrilling for all of us because it's like validation of black birding in in, in the ultimate form. Um, so he is our he is our senior senior member, our soul. He articulates mm-hmm. the black birder soul. Um, and what he articulated about you know birding while black, I agree with one hundred percent. Just like doing anything else while black, you've got to be cognizant of your own safety. Um, mm-hmm. you, we just have to. Um, you know, you, have I, you changed uh, your birding habits since your incident in 2020 uh, in Central Park? I haven't changed them since the incident in 2020, but long before 2020, I was very conscious of the fact that if I'm out in Central Park even, you know, skulking behind a bush with a black metal object in my hand, those being my binoculars, I'm going to be perceived completely differently from a white person doing exactly the same thing. And it could potentially end up really badly for me, even though a white person is doing exactly the same thing and would be perceived as a birder, as opposed to what people would assume about me. So, you know, you have to be aware of these things. You have to. That said, we have every right to public space and to outdoor spaces as anybody else. So assert that right when you can safely. One of the ways to make it safer, go in a group. Um, go with a white friend who has your back, you know, so that there's someone to back you up if there's a problem. Um, th- those are just some of the ways to 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 make it safer. Um, but by no means let anyone tell you that you are not supposed to be out in the great outdoors because we are. It is ours as much as anybody else's. Absolutely. And before we get to question number three, our listeners might not know this. So in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of re- talk to rename the Audubon Society, and also nearly 150 birds who were named after people who were tied to slavery and white supremacy. What's your take on the renaming of the Audubon Society and also these birds? The renaming of the birds is a much simpler decision, in my opinion. They should all be renamed. And that's because we don't have to make any judgment calls. We can just say, you know what? No more birds named after particular individuals because there's no reason for it. It doesn't tell you anything about the bird. You know, you tell me to go look for a Cooper's hawk. You know, you're looking for a hawk that looks like me. I don't think so. But you tell me to look for a redheaded woodpecker. It helps me know what I'm looking for. So slowly, I think the ornithological community is coming to that conclusion that the names should all be changed the things that are not named after specific individuals. And that way you don't have to make those, oh, that person was awful, or, oh, that's a good person. No, none of that. As far as the name Audubon, that's harder. Um, Though I do agree that the name has to change. And we just announced recently at New York City Audubon that we would be changing the name. Uh, The reason why that's harder is because for the longest time, Audubon was nothing but synonymous with birds and the protection of birds and their habitat. So for, like, I've been birding for, since I was nine or 10 years old, and during all that time until, like, the last five years or so, that's all that Audubon meant was birds. But in the meantime, more and more people have become aware, including myself, that Audubon, besides being, you know, very important in, in North American birding and also being an incredible bird artist, um, and I've seen those paintings, not the prints, but the original paintings, and they're exquisite. But along with that comes the knowledge now that he owned slaves. He sold slaves to finance his work, and he desecrated indigenous graves 
with hardly a, an afterthought. Um, so with that knowledge, because birding has had a deficit of black and brown people for so long, and we are trying to reverse that, we can't lead with, oh, and by the way, here's this organization that is named after this guy who thought owning slaves was Jim Dandy. That's fine. No, we, 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 can't, we can't lead with that if we want to reverse this deficit we've had for so long of not enough black and brown people uh, burning way below the numbers that we should be. So that's why I think the name has to change. And it's got nothing to do with trying to erase Audubon. You can erase Audubon. Look, the guy is way important in North American birding and his artistry is pivotal and historically important and gorgeous. But if we want everyone to be involved in birding and we have to have everyone involved in birding, because if we want a diversity of birds, we have to have a diversity of people who want to protect the birds. And we don't have that right now. And we've got to get that as the demographics of cities and the entire nation change. Wow. I am so, I'm so thankful for your work, but I'm also so thankful for the context that you give us as we think about it. And also as you inspire more people to get out in nature and become part of the birding community, which is a large and growing flock. You like my little, you like my little I like pun. That. There we go. <laughs> okay. Question number three. You're two for two. Uh-oh. You're two for two. Here we go. They do get a little harder, but here we go. Okay, this writer released a short story called Smoke, Lilies, and Jade during the Harlem Renaissance, and it's believed to be the first openly gay story published by a Black writer. Who is this author? I'm gonna take a wild stab and say Langston Hughes. No, it's Richard Bruce Nugent. Mm. So... Richard Bruce Nugent was not only a writer, but also an artist, actor, and dancer who performed on Broadway. He was a leading Black figure during the Harlem Renaissance and was close friends with Langston Hughes. His story, Smoke, Lily, and Jade, was submitted to a magazine on toilet paper and told the story of a young artist discovering homosexual love for the first time. So we both live in New York City. We know that New York City has a very strong uh, foundation. Uh, of the queer experience and has very strong roots in the city, Manhattan in particular. You've done some historic work yourself. You were one of the first openly gay writers to be hired by Marvel Comics. You introduced the first gay male character in Star Trek's comic book series by Marvel. And you also introduced the first lesbian character for Marvel. So tell us some of the highs and lows of creating such trailblazing characters. Did you have to really fight to get their stories to the forefront? Or did you come in at a time where uh, it was... You know, you felt like the industry was actually ready to hear your point of view and see these characters come to life. Oh, no, the industry wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't stop me. Wasn't it just a seamless transition, Christian? <laughs> Tell us how easy it was. Well, see, I knew there would be barriers because I had been a part, a very small part, but a part of the introduction of Marvel's first openly gay superhero. The superhero had always been there and they'd always dropped hints that he was gay, but this was the issue of a comic book series that made it explicit in which this character came out. And so I was the assistant editor on that comic book at the time. It was something that the writer had decided to do and my boss, the editor of the comic book, both agreed, yeah, we should do that. And so there it was and there we did it and I had a ringside seat and 
boy, were they not happy when it happened. They being the higher, high muckety mucks, sort of, you know, the, the, the bean counter pencil pusher types, they were, oh, they were distraught. Before we go to a commercial break, I've got to ask your opinion. So we've had an entire episode dedicated to comic book characters because we had a huge reaction and some serious feedback about a particular trivia question when I had a, uh, when I had some guests on. So I want to know your take. Here's the question, and it's not going to count towards your five questions, but which character would you consider to be the first African-American to appear in mainstream comics? There's a lot of debate about this one. The first African-American to appear in mainstream comics? Mm-hmm. Ooh, see, now you got me because my knowledge of the chronology is not so great. I mean, there's Iron Fist, there's Black Panther, there's, and see, I know Marvel. I don't know DC as well as I know Marvel. So I'm going to go with um, Black Panther, um, but I, I don't know if that's correct. So our research landed on the Falcon, but we got some major pushback from Jason Johnson, who's a friend of the podcast, who believed the answer was Black Panther. There was also talk of Lion Man, Lobo, Mal Duncan, Abar, and we had an hour-long conversation about this, so I just needed to make sure I got your take as someone who's created content for Marvel Comics, and maybe one day we'll have a whole other episode of just people arguing over the chronology of DC versus Marvel and Black uh, comic book characters. There you go. Uh, That's definitely a podcast in and of itself. In and of itself. We're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm with my favorite birder, Christian Cooper. We'll be right back and you're listening to The Blackest Questions. You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network. Black culture amplified. We are back from a quick commercial break. I'm with my favorite birder ever, Christian Cooper. Christian, are you ready for question number four? If I must. (laughs) We're doing well. So question number four, this legendary Harvard law professor was the first black professor to be tenured at the institution and is also the pioneer of critical race theory. Who is he? Ooh. Oh, I should know this and I don't. So I'm going to instead say Scott Edwards, the head of the ornith- the black man who was head of the ornithology department at Harvard, who rode his bicycle cross country and back. Okay, well, it's not Scott Edwards, but I did interview him for Living Bird Magazine, and we had a fantastic conversation about race and birding, but the answer is Derek Bell. So Derek Bell's resume is quite impressive. He worked at the NAACP with Thurgood Marshall, overseeing more than 300 desegregation cases. He served as deputy director of the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare's Office for Civil Rights. He's taught law at Stanford, USC, the University of Oregon, and he's notorious for bucking up to universities who refused to hire minority professors he felt were more than qualified. And as we mentioned, Bell developed the academic theory known as CRT, which states that racism is ingrained in the America's in America's legal, financial, and educational systems, and that racial progress only comes when it aligns with white interests. And so the late Derek Bell was a a scholar among scholars, and I know you spent some time in Cambridge. So what do you remember about your time, not just on Harvard's campus, but the unique birding diversity that exists even within Boston? Well, um, (laughs) my birding time when I was at Harvard was spent uh, primarily at Mount Auburn Cemetery, mm. um, which is, uh, and that always surprises people. They're like, cemetery? Why would you go to a cemetery to bird? 
Cemeteries are actually frequently really great birding places. For example, here in New York City, Greenwood Cemetery is one of the best birding spots in town. Um, and the reason is because there are all these great plantings, you know, to make a beautiful pastoral landscape for mm. the final resting place of all these people. But it also ends up making a great resting place for birds. So uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery is famous for its uh, landscaping and for the birds uh, that take advantage of it to rest and refuel, particularly during spring migration. So um, that's where I would go during uh, when I was in Cambridge. Um, as far as the whole Cambridge experience, the whole Harvard experience, it was interesting. Um, Did you work with Professor Edwards at all? No, no, he was after my time. Okay. I'm old. Well, listen, you look 27, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah right? Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, when I heard that he was there, I was just thrilled to pieces. I was like, I got to meet this guy. So when he came to New York, I was like, I was like this fangirl. <laughs> basically, you're the Chrissy and he's the Christian. Is that basically <laughs> what happens? <laughs> Something like that. Um, uh, but my experience at Harvard was great, particularly because I had a really tight group of friends. The one downside of it was... Well, maybe not the one downside, but one thing I was very aware of is the whole time I was there, I kind of felt like, okay, but this isn't really your school. It belongs to the Salton Stalls and the Cabots and, you know, those storied white people who are in all the pictures of the old football teams and all that. And I don't know if that was, you know, me layering that onto it or if it was a, 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 a legitimate onus of the place. Um, what I did discover when I went back for my 35th reunion is that they had changed um, the school song um, to make it more inclusive. Um, it no longer talk, talked about the Pilgrim's Pride and, and uh, Thy Sons. It talked to, you know, it was no longer gender or race specific. And that made a huge difference to me. I didn't think something like that would. I thought, eh, who cares? It's just some old song. But to now be able to sing the song, the school song fully, mm -hmm. I felt embraced by the school in a way I hadn't before. And that went a long way to sort of dispelling, I think, some of that that onus I felt before um, uh, of, of sort of the heaviness of the yeah. white establishment. Now, I've got a question for you because I, you know, I was down the road at Tufts. I might be a touch younger than you because I haven't had my 35th reunion just yet. But, you mm. know, I spent a lot of time in Boston. My sister was at Harvard when I was at Tufts. And, you know, I hear from a lot of people that Boston's the most racist city. You know, a lot of a lot of black kids have gone through all the different universities and colleges in that area. I tend to disagree with that. I don't think that Boston's the most racist city. And I and I know I'm in the minority in that debate. Where do you fall on the continuum of Boston is the most racist city in the United States? Since you, you talk a lot about race and sort of movement and migration of people and birds and black folks, where do you fall on that continuum? Yeah, I, I don't think um, uh, Boston is the most racist city in the United States. Not because Boston doesn't have its racism. Absolutely. But because there's lots of other cities <laughs> that are like, just as bad or worse. Exactly. I'm just yeah. like, let's not give Boston that much credit, guys. I feel like, listen, New York is up there for me. Like, New York is ahead of Boston. And usually when I say that at a dinner party, you know, I could see people getting ready to throw their red wine at me. But I just... <laughs> I don't feel the same animus in Boston that I do in New York. And maybe because it's old, I'm older, I'm not exactly sure. I think part of it is um, 
maybe it, it, it has a reputation for a stark division of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Like you know, the, the idea that if you're a black person and you go into South Boston, you won't come back out alive. Right. And, you know, so. And I might say that about Brighton Beach or lots of parts of Brooklyn or well, Staten like, Island or Queens exactly, or parts exactly. of Manhattan and but even I, pockets of the Bronx. But I think an another big part of that is because they had a real nasty fight over busing in Boston. Mm -hmm back in, I think it was the 70s. Mm -hmm. And I think that lingering perception of that uh, racism involved in that is, is still uh, tarnishing Boston's image. Um, but I, yeah, no, I, I definitely don't think Boston is the most racist city in the United States. Okay, well, listen, we're gonna boogie on to question number five. We're doing pretty well here, okay? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm at 50%, but this is gonna, if they get harder and harder, this is gonna really blow my, my average, but go ahead. But when we think about, you know, birds migrating, what, the percent that make it, you know, wherever <laughs> they need to go? I mean, we're tracking, right? Okay, question number five for my favorite birder, Christian Cooper. This 13-story building in New York City is located on Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard and was considered the Waldorf of Harlem. It served as an organization hub for the March on Washington and was frequented by Malcolm X. What is the name of this building? Is it the Audubon Ballroom? Oh, that's a fantastic guess, but it's the Hotel Teresa. Mm. So the hotel only allowed white guests until 1940 when it was bought by a black businessman who ended the racial segregation policy. It was one of the first places featured in the Negro Traveler's Green Book, which many people might remember from the movie, which in the beginning focused on just New York establishments that were safe places for black travelers. And as I mentioned, the hotel became a gathering place for civil rights activists who used the space to organize. In 1970, it was renovated and turned into office space. And in 1993, it was designated a New York City landmark. And so... We've talked a lot about race and segregation and the birding community. What do you see as a clear path to diversifying the birding community? What needs to be done besides reading your book, watching your new show and encouraging people to get out and bird. But, you know, for someone who's listening to this podcast who may not have ever birded, right? They only know about you and birding and Central Park, right? And so there might be some reticence. And I know that you're like, listen, that should not be the barrier to birding. But how do we how do we really diversify the Audubon societies, all these different organizations in so many cities across the country that are doing amazing work, but just don't have any people who look like us, right? Black Birding Week events that don't have any black folks in them. How can we sort of get those first steps going? If I had the easy answer to that, I would be a wealthy, wealthy man and our <laughs> problems would already be solved. Um, I don't know that there is a clear path. What we can do is we can keep working at it and chipping away at it, learn from our mistakes and uh, capitalize on our successes. Um, for example, one thing we're doing here with New York City Audubon, new name to come, um, TBD. is- TBD. Yeah. Exactly. So, for example, uh, New York City Audubon has a new program, NYCHA in Nature, NYCHA being the New York City Housing Authority. And the idea is to bring birding to people living in those housing projects. Um, and so that they have their green space. Why not get people looking for birds in those green spaces? So that's one way to start reaching out to communities that have been underserved by birding and the birding organizations. But you got to keep playing with those things. For example, don't have your bird walks on a Sunday morning because a lot of black folk are in church on Sunday mm -hmm. morning. So do them on Saturday morning, that kind of thing. 
Absolutely. And I love, you know, just making sure that especially NYCHA residents or residents of housing projects in any city, you know, they deserve green spaces. They deserve to sort of be fully uh, incorporated into the natural environment uh, that they're a part of. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. And I know that you do some mentoring with young people in the Bronx and making sure little kids get, you know, into birding at such a young age, just like you did. You know, I'm a pandemic birder. Um, I know that that's a, a, a new that's a thing. That's a thing. You know, all of us who got into it throughout the pandemic, we've been welcomed and embraced by the birding community. And I just so appreciate you and all the work that you've done. So before we get to the Black Lightning Round, which is my favorite, I want to remind our listeners about your new show on Net Geo Wild called Extraordinary Birder. Let's take another listen. Have you ever seen this many ravens at once? No. It's nutty. I mean, this is the kind of thing you expect to see with, you know, starlings. Yep. Ravens, a bird that size. I know. That's what's so weird about it. And your new book, Better Living Through Birding. I'm so excited for both of those projects. You've just... You've really opened up my world in such a wonderful, uh, rich way. I just, I can't thank you enough. No, oh, my pleasure. I'm glad. That's the idea. Okay, so here's my favorite. This is the Black Lightning Round. I just want you to give me the first answer that pops into your head. There are no right or wrong answers. Here we are, okay? All right. What's the last song you really jammed out to? Michael Jackson, um, you want to be starting something. Okay. Favorite comic book character of all time? Storm of the X-Men. What's the one bird you're dying to see but haven't just yet? Great gray owl. Ooh. What's the best spot in the United States to bird? Central Park. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> Prospect Park. Person you'd like to go birding with? President Obama. Okay, President Obama, if you're listening. <laughs> Pigeons, are they sky rats or misunderstood beauties? They are misunderstood beauties, and this is coming from someone who used to think of them as sky rats. So there is an education curve there. Okay. Would you ever keep a bird as a pet? No, never. That's You might as well, you know, uh, a blind Picasso. You know, to take a bird that is uh, all about flying and put it in a cage, wrong. Okay. What's your favorite episode or location on your new show? Alabama. Oh, can't wait. I'm a member of the Alabama Audubon Society. Just randomly. I really like what they do. Um, oh, oh. And who do you hope reads your new book? Everybody. Absolutely everybody. But in particular, if it gets into more uh, African-American hands and gets us out birding, then mission accomplished. Christian Cooper, you are a gem among gems. I want to thank you so much for joining us on The Blackest Questions. I want to thank our listeners for joining us on The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Sasha Armstrong and Jeffrey Trudeau. And Regina Griffin is our director of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more from the Griot Black Podcast Network on the Griot app, the website, and YouTube. Thanks so much. 